Hey, Andrew. Hey, Greg. It is Wednesday, August the 9th, 2017. What have you been into this week? Well, the past week or two, I've actually been into a lot. I watched all of Iron Fist, which wasn't that bad. <laughs> I don't think it was... I think it suffers from not being as good as the other ones in its category. You know, mm. every, as well as some other things. I think it probably could have been eight episodes versus 13 would have helped a little bit. I also think that young white dude with anger problems who's good at martial arts. Does that sound familiar to you? I feel like we've done that before. <laughs> so I think it was a little bit overlapped with Daredevil a little too much. Uh, that being said, I think it did some really cool things. Uh, some things that were a little unexpected for me. The plot is complicated in sort of a good way. Like there's no like, this is the villain. This is the good, like for a while, like there's no really no... I wasn't really sure what was going to happen, which was good. And there's some really good characters in it. So I think I understand why people don't like it. I think the hate train wrote a little hard on this one. Uh, and I'm hoping that I think it's not irrecoverable from. I think that if he's good in Defenders, they've already confirmed a second season. I think they can salvage this and make it something good. Hmm. Well, maybe it might be worth taking a look at then. I mean, the fight scenes were meh. Nah, I think if you're going to go that's... for Kung Fu, you really got to go for the Kung Fu. And there's there's times where it's like, oh, almost. I mean, he does get in a fight with a guy who's like a literal like drunken master. And that was pretty sweet. Yeah, I that's that's one of the things that made me the most anxious about it. I mean, you know, there's all those things about the kind of ickiness of the white savior thing. And but I was like, well, maybe I can look past that if there's going to be some really good kung fu in it because i like watching kung fu and i've looked past some some real bad real bad uh writing and everything else to see some good kung fu but if it's not if the action scenes aren't that good that's a ugh, i wouldn't say they're time. they're bad like i wouldn't there's no point i'm like oh that was terrible it was just like i think the scenes once again the scenes in daredevil were pretty dang solid although i think it should be going a different direction than daredevil and at times it kind of comes out but there's also, there's also just not a ton of fighting in it. There's not a lot of action in the show. Um, there's times where it happens, but like, I wouldn't say, I mean, there's, there's points where there's a lot of action, but there's a lot of time where there's probably whole episodes where there's no fights, honestly. Huh. Which is an interesting choice. Yeah. It's kind of a slow burn, I'd say, but we all know my opinions on things. Sometimes I'm a little too soft, but anyway, <laughs> something I won't be soft on. Well, maybe a little soft on. I finished Children of the Mind which is the Orson Scott Card book. It's quote-unquote the last book in the Ender Quintet, as they call it, but not really because he published a fifth book called Ender in Exile, which takes place between the first and second book. And I thought it was like a short story or novella length, and then I queued it up on my Kindle, and it was like 450 pages. I was like, oh, good God. I don't know if I can do this anymore. <laughs> this is also his most re essentially his most recent work in this universe. And... From what I've read, some of Orson Scott Card's recent, more public opinions shine through. <laughs> oh, yeah. So I'm gonna, uh. I'm gonna, I'm in this <laughs> to the bitter end. So I've come this far. So I'm gonna try. If I really hate it, I'm gonna stop reading it. That you know, that is a big step for you. It is to uh, abandon a book that you don't like. I mean, I I like Children of Mine better than I like Xenocide. It was a little tighter of a story. It was shorter. It gets weird as hell, like really weird. Like we went out of science fiction territory a long time ago. Huh. More like, I don't know, science philosophy. I don't know. But like weird, 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 weird. But it was okay. And it tied up the story fine. 
But yeah, so we'll see how that turns out. Also, I saw Dunkirk over the weekend mm-hmm. in IMAX, which is the first IMAX movie I've seen since I saw the first Thor movie in IMAX 3D. And I said <laughs> that was the worst experience I've ever had in a theater. And I'll never <laughs> do that again because I hate 3D. But luckily, Christopher Nolan also hates 3D and does not do that. And sounds like most companies are moving away from 3D, which is great in my book. Uh, and Dunkirk was really good. That's what I hear. What spawned it was I, so my, my stepdad and I, we don't have a lot of shared interests, uh, but he really likes war movies and war books, particularly World War II. And I really like Christopher Nolan. So, and I, I like war movies too. So I, I said for his birthday, which is in December, I said, I will take you to see Dunkirk and IMAX. Uh, so we went along with Shay's father and my brother-in-law. So we had a little men's night out. <laughs> and uh, we went and saw Dunkirk and it was loud. It was intense. That movie's like an hour and a half, but it feels like it's about three really? hours. And it does a weird sort of like just this is really a spoiler and it might save you some confusion. It does. It tells the story out of order the whole time. Huh. So it took me a little bit to pick on what was pick up what was going on. There's almost no dialogue in the movie. Uh, but it was filmed with, you know, with IMAX cameras. So they really make use of that uh, real estate, especially in like the plane scenes, which are really, really cool. And it was just a good story. Uh, if you think it's a rah-rah, go nationalism, war is awesome kind of movie, don't go see it because you're going to feel bad. If you are claustrophobic or scared of drowning, don't go see it. <laughs> okay. Because um, I didn't have a fear of drowning, but now I do. <laughs> uh, but it was really good. I really enjoyed it. It's be- beautifully, beautifully shot. Um, some of Nolan's like sound issues come through where it's like, I know you really like your ambient sounds and like, realistic people talking through masks and thing but i kind of need to know what they're they're saying (laughs) especially when there's like 10 lines of dialogue in the whole movie yeah but it was good and uh the final thing that i've been into is we haven't brought it up yet but rick and morty's back it is you've been watching it i have uh it's been pretty solid so far there's been a lot of complaining online not that's unusual i guess uh but i've really been enjoying it what what i mean i'm I'm going to ask you to speak for all internet commenters, but like, what's the majority opinion on why it's bad? Slow. It's not as funny. It's, there's a lot of complaints about Rick no longer outsmarting people, but turning into a little bit of like, I can do whatever I want. But I feel like they just weren't paying attention because Rick has always kind of been that way. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, but I also think that that's kind of, I mean, that's kind of been the character arc you know, is that he's become more and more, you know, chaotic neutral uh, as as the series has gone on. Like, that's, I feel like that's kind of the arc of his character is, you know, he's he's going to have, he's going to lapse into this bit of incredible nihilistic selfishness and then maybe find his humanity again. I kind of feel like that's the, the central arc of this season. And I guess people are just upset because it's not intergalactic cable over and over again so maybe and that you know intergalactic cable is awesome but i feel like yeah they weren't i guess people said it was like having to kind of like referential or montage or not montage but like parody episodes like one of mad max and one of john wick i don't know why they chose that at all i don't think i didn't see that connection but um i thought all three episodes have been awesome i thought that you know, the Mad Max one was really funny. I thought that the Pickle Rick one was just ridiculous and insane. And I loved getting uh, Dane Trejo to play Jaguar. 
(laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, I've been very happy with the season so far. I think it's, it's really strong. They're clearly leaning into more of a character arc for all of the characters, but that's what's going to happen with a show like this. It can't just be all goofy jokes all the time. And also almost every episode of the original seasons is like it's referential and parodying of sci-fi fantasy properties. And the Mad Max one was appropriate because it was all about uh, Summer's nihilism. And what what better way to have a conversation about nihilism than against the bad dr- backdrop of various post-apocalyptic fantasies? Like, uh, people are dumb. Yeah, I mean, I and I and for the Pickle Rick episode, I just thought there was, I mean, I was watching it at work over my lunch break and I was like trying so hard not to just laugh really loudly the whole office be like what the hell is that guy doing over there uh because i just i don't know the the pickle gag didn't get old for me uh and just the therapist and like that those interactions were just perfect for me well yeah and they they juxtaposing his ridiculous action sequences next to them just having you know just standard therapist conversations um drove home the overall theme of the episode that Maybe Rick's uh, relentless pursuit of crazy adventure is because he's got some deeper issues and that maybe dealing with those issues isn't as fun as turning into a pickle and going on some kind of weird like 90s action movie adventure, which was awesome. It was all great. Great episode. Yeah, I uh, really enjoyed it. So I will. Do you know do you know how long it's supposed to be? I wasn't sure how many episodes they're going to make. I think it's a standard run of 10 or 13. Okay, cool. Cool. I'm down with that. So it's one of those weird things where it's like, oh, we made five episodes. It's like, shit. See you in 2020. Yeah. Uh, so I guess it's a good time to be a nerd when, you know, Rick and Morty and Game of Thrones are both coming out weekly. And Preacher. And Preacher, which I have not watched yet, which I need to. Ugh, get your shit together. I know. Well, I got to watch American Gods. I got to watch Preacher. There's a bunch of like adult comic shows I haven't watched yet. I, guess. <laughs> I also need to finish Walking Dead from last season, but. I found myself explaining Preacher to someone at work. Um, I said, okay, so here's the premise, just the basics. So there's a hard drinking bar brawl and preacher from Texas named Jesse Custer. And he's got a angel demon in his head that gives him the literal voice of God, which means when he says things to people, they do them automatically. And his best friend is an Irish vampire named Cassidy. And his girlfriend is a assassin named Tulip. And they're on a road trip to find God himself who has gone missing from heaven and is somewhere in America. Oh, and they're pursued by a, an immortal cowboy called the Saint of Killers. Uh, and there's, okay, a guy, so that's the there's a guy with a butt for a face. <laughs> there's, oh, there's a guy with a butt for a face and he's in hell with Hitler who's kind of a nice guy. It's just like, how do you, it's like, and then I was like, oh, and, it, and then it like gets crazy from there. But <laughs> yeah, you need to watch, you need to watch Preacher. Yeah, I've never read the comics. So I, I both those things are crimes probably um I, I didn't like the art style when i started reading it and kind of turned me off but no uh, i don't know i may just probably just didn't get, give it a chance but uh, well. yeah but i do like the guy who plays preacher what is his name uh dominic dominic Cooper? yeah he played tony stark's dad he did yep he did he's very good so normally this is one of those little half episodes that we do between our, our bigger topics. And normally we would kind of use this time to just catch up on a bunch of news, but 
we're kind of in these summer doldrums where like just nothing's happening. <laughs> like there's not really anything to talk about other than like, oh, did you hear that so-and-so got cast in such and such? Or, you know, they always great for a podcast. Like, hey, they put out some pictures of Cable from Deadpool 2. <laughs> like it's like, all right, there's just not much going on. Um, but it is Game of Thrones season and we only have so many Game of Thrones seasons left uh, because – at the end of the next season of the show, we'll never be able to talk about Game of Thrones again because there will never be any more books. So, <laughs> so this is, so we thought, you know what, instead of, you know, scrounging together a bunch of bullshit, tiny news stories, why don't we talk about Game of Thrones in depth and talk about, and, and actually get our predictions down, recorded and out there on, on the internet so that we can be proven or disproven, uh, when this season and then the show itself is over. So we're going to talk about our predictions for how this season, season seven is going to play out and how season eight is going to play out and thus the end of the show. And I've made my predictions and you've made your predictions and we haven't seen them. We haven't shared our notes with each other. This is kind of a sealed envelope situation. And so we're just going to run down how we think things are going to go or how we'd like to see them go. And then at the end of the episode, we'll talk about, um, episode four of this season in, in detail, like we've been doing. And I guess, I guess I probably should have clarified this when we were like mapping out our plan, but it's probably pretty obvious, but we're talking about how we think the show is going to play out, knowing that the books may play out slightly differently. These are our predictions for the, the HBO timeline, let's call it. Yes. Yeah. I was having that trouble. I'm like, wait, are we talking about both for a second? I'm like, no, we're just talking yeah. about the show. Yeah. yeah. Uh, because, I mean, like you said, we're never going to actually know. So there's no point in putting <laughs> predictions out. <laughs> um, so I guess the, where we should start is what do you see as kind of the end game of this season of the show? How, like, when we, at the, when, when this season is over, and we are headed into season, you know, this long gulf of time between season seven and season eight. What do you think the kind of state of play is going to be? So I made these predictions thinking, okay, we've got three episodes left of this season, including one, which I've seen a preview of, which I assume sure. you have as well. The, 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 the next time on Game of Thrones yeah. preview. And so I, I said, let's use all the information I have to make this prediction. I didn't want to ignore that because that seems dumb. Um, and I, but I, I have not taken part in any of the leaks have you i have not no okay so get that on the record we have i had not looked up anything about uh any of that so there was one i did see one like 4chan kind of like reddit post like from a year and a half ago that was like here's what's gonna happen in season seven and some of it's been coming true so i'm a little worried it was true but uh some of it hasn't come true so i think it was just bullshit um so i think this is a, a virgin guess if you will untainted by i don't know Malfians, yeah. So anyway, so um, the end of the season. So I think this season, by the end of the season, we're going to see this focus switch from the humans versus the humans to the humans versus the Waywalkers in full swing. Mm -hmm. uh, perhaps some continued annoyance on the side from some like antagonists, maybe someone like Littlefinger. Uh, the big resolution, I think, is that I think we're going to see the end of Cersei in this season. Mm -hmm. And I think that think end, I think that end comes with by the hands of Jamie. But hands, plural. Well, hand. <laughs> so, so walk me through how you think we get there. Well, I think that. So we see next week that Danny is starting to cut into Cersei's dominance. We have a pendulum effect going around. You have a rubber band effect where Danny's really powerful, then Cersei's really powerful. Now Danny has cut into that a little bit. 
Um, I guess the Iron Bank of Bravos is just going to fuck off because they got their gold and maybe they'll help a little bit more, but maybe they'll be just like, there is the, how can Cersei afford all this? And that's going to be the answer. Um, I think that Danny will come to control most of the reach in South, which gives her a pretty strong foothold on Westeros, considering that's basically like a third of the continent, more or less. Especially if John is more or less an ally, it gives you two thirds of the continent, leaving, well, a pretty seemingly devastated army. And I think we'll get some sort of siege of uh, King's Landing. Uh, the classic prediction is that Cersei goes sort of Mad King and threatens to blow up the whole city. Oh, I feel like that's sort of since she blew up something already, I feel like it's a little bit of like a rehash, but, and then the prediction is always that Jamie kills her to stop mirroring his kill of his murder of the, uh, the mad King. So yeah, I, I'm not sure that's exactly I, how it's going to play out, but. So I think I'm with you. Like I've, I've had it pegged that, um, that Jamie kills Cersei. I think that's the, that's the end of both of their characters. I think. Um, and I think it's possible that Jamie might die shortly after that. That's yeah, that's my hunch that either he kills himself as a result or, you know, they get into some kind of struggle and she stabs him. And I mean, it's going to be strangling because that's what the, the witch predicted. Um, so I think that's going to happen, but I don't see that happening this season. I think that is your big, oh shit moment of season eight. Okay. Um, I, th I'm predicting a little bit of a slower time timeline. I don't think we get into full, um, humans get their shit together and, and take on the, take on the night King until season eight. I think we're, I, I, um, because I think that, okay, so you're right. We have three episodes left and I think there's just too much that has to happen in Cersei's storyline, um, between now and the end of this season. And I feel like you don't get a lot of carryover tension into season eight if Cersei's dead and you don't have a um, convincing big bad. And so here's how I think, this is how I think the rest of this season plays out. Um, I mean, starting in, in episode five, Jamie is clearly going to be a captive of Tyrion and Danny. Like that's how he's getting out of the river agreed is that, is that the black water i was no never really it's not clear the black i don't that. think it's the black water i just think it's another river but it could be i also yeah. think that braun might be not dead but very badly wounded from getting yeah. knocking jamie out of the way like burned really Bron badly and maybe die from that i don't know braun that that should have been braun should have died yeah I agree like that would that. have been that's that's the poetic end to his arc because he's you know his money hits the ground and then he decides to still get up and fight instead of running away and then he like risks himself to save jamie um, uh, that's the, that's, you know, that's his arc. So he should have gone out, but anyway, um, so he, so, so Jamie ends up as a captive, um, and I'm not sure if I think that that there's going to be conversations with Tyrion and Danny between him. That's going to set up that start to set up the conflict that's going to play out with him murdering Cersei in season eight. But I think that between now and the end of the season, Euron and Cersei are going to get married and um, we're going to have a big wedding scene between those two. Um, and I also think by the end of this season, we are going to get a battle between Danny's forces plus Jon Snow and the White Walkers. 
And I think the big oh shit moment of this season is the White Walkers kill one of the dragons and zombify it. I agree with that. Uh, and my so because I let me let me expand that a little bit of my thoughts about this and how that's sort of being the only way that we arrive to that conclusion. Because we saw next episode that there's shit going down with the White Walkers and the Army of the Dead. They're heading towards Eastwatch by the sea. And but for what purpose? Right. Like we've been told they can't get through the wall, even if the wall wasn't there, there's magic or some part of the wall is magic. Right. So they can't get through. Could they go around over ice, perhaps? Something that's why they're going to the sea. Okay, that's feasible. That seems like a really stupid like explanation. Like, oh, yeah, I just went around. It's like, right, right. Okay, well, that seems like pretty ill-thought-out wall and magic. Like, you know what I mean? They wouldn't make it that way. Like, it seems like a really stupid, like, cheap workaround. Um, so what would, so the magic needs to go away somehow, right? So there's two ways I see the magic going away. The first case is that, well, three cases, really. If they revive the fact that maybe the Night King has the horn of Jero, whatever, and can bring the wall down via that, which we at this point, we kind of dumb because we haven't talked about that in three seasons. Right. Second thing is that and this is talked about with some people at work. I had this idea that maybe the magic that keeps the White Walkers behind the wall is somehow tied to Bran. And if Bran dies, then the wall magic will go away. Hmm. Fourth thing. Sorry, I've got three things. Third thing. Four things. Third thing. We've seen, we have seen dead beyond the wall, behind the wall. Maybe it doesn't count because it's kind of on the wall because early on that guy comes back to life on the other side of the wall. So maybe the army of the dead can function beyond the wall, but the night, like the White Walkers can't. Yeah. Fourth is, and this is what I think the most likely is that they go north, they kill a dragon, they zombify it, and then use the dragon to bring the wall down. And the magic of, magic fire of the dragon is what breaks the magic of the wall or something along stupid like that. Yeah, I think that's that starts to make sense because they have no way through the wall right now and you know, you could you could try to do the little cheat of whatever weird magic the Night King used on Bran to then be able to have access to the cave that because he got marked or touched by the Night's King or whatever that they can now get through the wall if Bran's on the other side of it. But at that point, it's like, well, yeah, but there's only so many tunnels through the wall. That's so, you know, you just, you set up a bunch of spears on, on one end of the tunnel and, and game set match, right? Or just collapse the tunnels in and then they have to climb it. Doesn't look like the army of the dead is particularly mobile. Right. Um, and we know that the wall has defenses against climbers. You're not getting an army over that thing. Um and I think, yeah, they get it th- that 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 by getting a dragon, that's how they, um, that's how they bring it down. I think that's your, that's the big oh shit moment. Did you have an oh shit moment? Uh, that was probably it. I mean, yeah. that was my oh shit moment. Possibly, I played around with some ideas around Littlefinger of him killing Bran and that being the oh shit moment. Which this is the the second or third theory. I forget which said of like him killing Bran. The oh shit moment being he just killed Bran. He was her eyes and ears. It gets sort of a, a plot device that's kind of hard to function because apparently he's just Dr. Branhatton, as everyone's calling him now, and he can <laughs> just see everything. Like, and like, it makes it kind of weird because, like, doesn't he just know that everything going on in the South is happening? He seems to be omniscient, essentially. Um, or, yeah, omniscient. And Littlefinger's greed is what brings the White Walkers through the wall. Huh. Which is one that's, idea I had. That's interesting. Um, but then I also had that maybe and then beyond that and possibly because of that or even before that, that 
I think Arya is going to be the one to kill Littlefinger with the dagger. Whether it's now, whether it's this season, whether it's the end of the, by huh. the end of the series. That's my prediction. And you think that's why Bran gave it to her? Because he knew he was like... I think so. I want it to be you. Yeah. yeah she was I, the one who had to watch her father die. And she was the one who had to deal with the fallout of all that going down in the most in the most close, you know, the closest way. So uh, he, he's going to tell her that, you know, um, Littlefinger was the... He was the start of all of this. Yeah. I think... he was. Um, I think the Littlefinger question, because right now he doesn't have a role on the show other than he's this slimy presence that's necessary because the Starks need the, the Knights of the Vale on their side. So I'm, I was, so yeah, so, so your thought was, um, that, uh, Arya kills Littlefinger. I was thinking, and, and I, I don't know how, how well I thought through this, but, I would almost think it would be more interesting and more exciting if Sansa agreed to marry Littlefinger, became Lady of the Vale, and then promptly murdered the shit out of him, just mm. like he did to Lisa. <laughs> like, because that would be such a, like, oh shit moment for Sansa, and would kind of crystallize this, like, her kind of coming into her own is this like political schemer and take no shit kind of person and also give her a nice revenge because while he did set this whole thing in motion, um, I think if anybody has the biggest claim to getting their revenge on Littlefinger, it's Sansa. I mean, he, he handed her to Ramsey knowing full well how that was going to go down. Yeah. And maybe it's both. Maybe she has Arya because I think, yeah. you know, this past episode, was really showing to Sansa who Arya is. And she seemed uncomfortable with that, but I think that as reality, as, you know, Sansa's getting a very, getting a very realist perspective on the world, I think, maybe she'll see like, oh, okay, I'll marry him, get the veil, and then, Arya, it's all you. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, all right, I, I get down with that. I agree with that. I think, yeah, I think that at bare minimum, having it come on the order of Sansa, I yeah. think. Because I don't think uh, we, I mean... We saw her be pretty brutal with Ramsay at the end of last season, but I still don't know if she could kill him with her bare hands kind of thing. I don't know. Maybe. Well, see, I think I think that would be such a cathartic moment on the show and such a turn for her because, you know, the argument was like, oh, up until this point, she hasn't gotten her hands dirty. Yeah. But she'll get her, she'll get her hands dirty for this one. That makes sense. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Um, I mean, Littlefinger has to get a comeuppance. Um, I don't, I, I don't see him killing Bran because number one, Bran would see it coming, right? So, well, although his, his powers of seeing into the future are questionable, we don't quite know what his, the extent of his powers, but either way, but also that would just seem like such a weird little, um, like then what the hell was the point of Bran? Yeah, no, I would agree completely. Yeah. <laughs> because, because he still hasn't been of any help to the Stark, the Starks of like, Hey, I can like see everything and I know everything. But, um, hey, like, you want this knife? <laughs> like, like, yeah. uh, but yeah, we're, I, I don't need to get too far into the review of, <laughs> of this episode because we have so much to say about that. So, so you're saying that Cersei's dead at the end of this season. I say she's alive, but married to Euron. Um, I do think Euron's ultimate fate is death, probably by the hands of a dragon. He may kill Yara before he goes in some way. So I think, I think, um, 
what's going to... Well, so let's... Okay, so I'm going to get into season eight now, because I think we both... We've kind of mapped out. So season season seven is going to end with a zombie dragon melting the wall. Mm-hmm. I think, and I think that that's a pretty good cliffhanger. Yeah, um, that's a no shit moment if you ever have one. <laughs> um, and I think, but you also, I think that at that point, it's also you you can't have the human characters like fully aligned and ready to go yet because if it's just like they're the the the, the walkers are coming through the wall. But also all of Westeros is unified. Like, it's like, all right, cool. Now we're just going to watch these guys fight. And so I feel like you need, we still need a little bit more time. So I think that in season eight, this is where Jamie's going to end up killing, um, um, is going to end up killing Cersei. And that means that Euron becomes king. So now we've got, we've, we've, we've got, cause I don't think Jamie survives whatever this thing is. That's going to be the arc of his character is finally killing Cersei um, and being the, the queen slayer, <laughs> fulfilling the prophecy and kind of really closing out his arc of going from being a shithead to being not a shithead. Um, but then you have Euron on the throne, which is going to be awful for everyone. But I think that he, in relatively short order, is killed by Theon because Theon... We know where this arc has to go for him, right? Like, he has to, like, become an active participant again, right? Like, it just, we can't keep going through this thing of, like, him, like, wanting to help somebody, but chickening out and, like, not being able to stand up for himself and all that. Like, he has to eventually break through and do the right thing for once. And I think that's going to be killing Euron and probably dying in the process because, again, now his arc is over and we don't need to hear about it anymore. Hmm. Okay. Um, and then I think you have Daenerys installing herself as nominal queen, but really just in time to fend off the final assault from the White Walkers in King's Landing. I think that's where the last stand happens. Um, or maybe it happens at Winterfell. It doesn't really matter. But well, that's. I, I want to talk about that. Okay. Because I, I, I wanted to ask my question was, and I was unsure about, is where does the final battle or battles with, you know, Ness go down? I thought that it was it's hard to imagine the Starks leaving Winterfell again because I feel like it would bring the show full circle. We started at Winterfell. We end at Winterfell. You know, the Starks had all been dispersed and all have come back and it's their final spot, their final stand. However, the walkers only getting to Winterfell seem pretty lame. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like the whole continent needs to be really be under threat. And I'm not really sure how it plays out. I do think that having it at King's Landing makes more sense from like, a broader, I don't know, if like a more micro storyline where like the poetic storyline of like starting and ending at Winterfell makes sense. I'm not really sure about that. I do think that, and it's also hard to imagine like, I guess I'm just having trouble imagining multiple battles. So I imagine the first battle at the wall being, okay, fight them at Eastwatch, try and hold them back. They get a dragon, burn the wall down. That's one battle. And then they retreat. Then like, what's the next two battles, three battles? Like, I just feel like, I don't know. I don't really see... Because they know that if they don't fight them and win, they just make the army bigger. <laughs> so, yeah. like, I, I guess I'm not sure how that plays out. So, I, I mean, I don't know exactly because, again, I think you're right. Like, if they make it as far south as King's Landing, it's like, well, we as viewers don't have an emotional connection. We don't, you know, we're going to fight a lot harder to see the defense of Winterfell than the defense of King's Landing. Yeah. But, again, you're right. Like, it just doesn't feel like all that, like, that they were all that big of a threat. Now, I think you can do some 
convenient kind of slowing them down because you're right. Like once they get through the wall, it's like, well, why don't they just come all the way south? Um, is that the idea that they can really only come as far as the winter, right? Like if it's still kind of sunny in King's Landing, like they can't get, get down there. Like they have to like kind of go with the edge of the storm, so to speak. So maybe you buy yourself some time and you can still have some squabbling over who's in charge of King's Landing during that period. Um, that makes sense. But yeah, I, I mean, so I think that, by, I think that, you know, of course the humans are going to win the battle, but at great cost. Um, I think we're going to see, well, I actually, no, let, let me back up. I think that it's possible that the battle happens at the Trident, which is kind of in the middle of the continent. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. because I was, I was doing a little bit of reading today and trying to catch up on some of like the various dreams and prophetic visions that various characters have had. And Danny had a dream of her riding a dragon into battle at the Trident against an army wearing, uh, like armor made of ice. Oh, okay. That makes um, sense. That was smart of you. I didn't do that. Yeah. Um, so that, that, and that seems kind of cool. That's an area we haven't seen yet, but it is also kind of loaded with history from the show because that's where Robert Baratheon, uh, killed Rhaegar Targaryen and kind of sealed the rebellion. Um, but I, I still think, and we've talked about this, we've gone back and forth on this a lot. Like who is on the Iron Throne at the very end of all this? And, my hunch has always been that the answer is nobody, that they figure out some other system where, you know, some kind of local representation or something like a democracy or something like that. Um, but then again, democracy kind of goes against the overall themes of this show, which says that, like, no, super cool, super talented people chosen by gods and prophecy are the ones who are most, you know, qualified to lead, Right. It's Daenerys and Jon Snow because they have, you know, the right lineage and the right magical powers given to them through divine providence, as opposed to, you know, it should be Marjorie Tyrell because she was super popular with all the people in King's Landing because she fed them. Yeah. Um, one important thing about feeding, I think food is going to be at a big crux of the rest of this season and next season because we've had it mentioned multiple times now and whenever we're in a show like this where their time is at a premium i pay attention to things that seem like one-off things that was done purposefully right like sansa i mean sometimes it's just things to do for characters to have dialogue and talk or whatever but like you know sansa talking about the grain shipments and who has what and they need to come here and drop it here and then talking about the grain in the reach and then burning the grain in the reach i just feel like there's been a lot of and like as winter approaches like i feel like the food and maybe that's what some of the squabbles in season eight will be over will be about food and distribution of that. Yeah, because I think that gives you once the big bad, you know, Cersei and or Euron is out of the way. And even though you have some agreement between Jon and Daenerys that like, hey, we should probably take on these immortal ice zombies. Um, they can still be there can still be conflict because and you can still see like them have arguments over how to rule because yeah, now all of a sudden there's this scarcity of food and Daenerys wants to give some of it to, uh, the people in King's Landing and Jon Snow says, but the North is starving and they can have these arguments and it can create tension. Um, and, and, and it will kind of fit with what is the overall theme of the show, which is that nature is the bigger enemy than man. Yes. I think that, so to comment on sort of like the end point of the show i think the white walkers will be defeated 
some people, there's been a lot of people saying, like, well, it'd be a perfect George R. R. Martin thing to have them just win, and that's the end of the series. But that seems dumb. Uh, not dumb, but I just don't think that's what's going to happen. That'd be kind of a big fuck you to the reader after seven books and whatever yeah. else. Um, I do think there'll still be someone on the throne. At first, I sort of thought maybe there'd be, because I think that one thing that's going to happen this season or early next season is John and Danny are going to get down to Bonin. Uh, because even though I have still felt no chemistry between them, the after the show inside the episode from, you know, D&D told me that they're getting attracted to each other. Been, <laughs> yeah, I have yeah. been told that. <laughs> yes. And, and Davos almost looked directly into the camera and told me that uh, yeah. even though I don't see chemistry between these characters, trust me, um, Jon Snow was creeping on Daenerys's boobs. Yeah. Um, so we're going to get down to boning. They're going to get married probably. And that will sort of solve some of the tension of who's in charge of what, because I'll be king and queen. And I feel like they'll have like, uh, I'm king in the north, you're queen of the south, together we rule the seven kingdoms. Uh-huh. However, however, I don't think both of them survive the series. I think one of them goes down. I don't know which one, but I think one of them dies before the end of the series. I, I you know, I, I, I think the them getting married for political purposes, because it solves, it conveniently solves their whole... Um, Who's, you know, who's going to pledge loyalty to whom? Uh, it makes a lot of sense for that to happen. But I think that, I think this is where you're going to get a love triangle where between John, Sansa, and Daenerys. See, I would like that because I, I like the John Sansa love connection, as weird as it is for me to say that, but uh, minus the taboo, right? Like, I like that connection. I get the chemistry there. I get why it makes sense for both their characters to come to this point. We already shown we've already been shown he's a, he has a propensity for redheads, um, but and that you know I think for both their character arcs to ending to end to go through I think you know one thing that Martin does well and the books do well is have character arc and change as opposed to some many books and works of fiction and I think to see these characters go from where they started basically hating each other or dismissing each other to end up going through lots of intense shit independently and be brought back to the same place, that seems good to me. As opposed to, you got nice long blonde hair and dragons. Like, that, it just doesn't, Yeah, you know. But I think having a political marriage makes a lot of sense. Like, the characters have a lot of incentives in world to do that. But I think from a storytelling perspective, it would be a lot more interesting if it was, if we really highlighted that this is a total marriage of convenience. Yeah, and now what will be interesting is if your story, if your perspective, if your um idea comes true, and maybe John and Sansa are in love, but she has to marry Littlefinger and he has to marry Danny, and mm. we're not too far off from where we started the show, where people married people they didn't really want to, and we got in some trouble because of it. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess it depends on which way you think that Martin is going to go for the, you know, the circle approach. Of we're kind of back where we started, or we've actually solved some things and changed some things for the better in the world. I don't really know which direction that's going to go. Well, I, I think he's going to, I think it's, it's going to be a little bit of both, right? That, you know, I, I don't think it's a very George R. R. Martin thing to do to tie up all of the, all of the plots and have a completely dis- decisive, definitive ending of, yep, the good guys won and everyone is happily ever after and the system is fixed. But this idea that, yeah, like some of these political marriages that, you know, were pretty toxic uh, leading up to the War of the Five Kings, like mm, they are still going to be around. And um, 
Yeah, you want to talk about I... some some individual character characters here? Sure, 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 sure. All right, because I have some thoughts. <laughs> first thought, first thought, Clay Game Bowl is going to happen. For those of you unindoctrinated, Clay Game Bowl is the theory that the Hound and the Mountain, who are still both around, despite what we thought, have a big fight at some point. Uh, there's been different points people have thought it's going to happen, but I think that how it's going to happen is when the White Walkers break through the wall, they're going to be able to control the mountain because he's a zombie huh. and dead. And then at some point, the Hound's going to have to fight him. And I think the Hound beats him because it's the whole yes. like big brother, although I, the Hound might not live through the whole series. I have a list here of people I think that make it and people that think <laughs> that die. Well, it's really just a list of people that I think make it and everyone else is on the chopping block. Here's who I think survives the series. Sansa, Brienne, Podrick, Tyrion, Arya, John or Danny, not both, Missandei. I pretty much think everyone else is on the chopping block. <laughs> I think that Brienne becomes a king or queen's guard, uh, possibly with Podrick in tow. He just becomes a knight. Um, I think Tyrion will probably stay hand to the king or queen. And Arya just is going to do the fuck she wants, I think. Uh, I think... Some other people, some notable things. I think Hound goes down fighting post Clay Game Bowl, or possibly from wounds sustained in the Clay Game Bowl. I think Davos goes down at some point as a heroic sacrifice because he's really the only hero of the show. <laughs> There's no other way he can die, right? No. I think Grey Worm goes down fighting because. Oh yeah, Grey Worm goes soldier. down next episode. I think Jorah sacrifices himself for Danny. Oh, at some I forgot point. about him. Yeah, I think Theon goes down fighting, like you said. Probably you're on. Uh, or to save Yara, but I think he might fail on that. I'm not sure. Uh, that's my list. What do you think? Um, I think... I think you're mostly right. Um, I think Bran lives. Mm. Um, I think Bran will die l much later in the series as sort of a one of the last, oh shit, like we lost our biggest weapon to put us in the back foot to get that before the final victory mm. against the White Walkers. That's just my mm. idea. Yeah, no, I think that's a solid list. I uh, uh, The trailer hinted that we were going to see a showdown between the Hound and the Mountain this season. Um, just because they basically like just, you know, crammed two shots of them drawing their swords together, like right next to each other in the in one of the trailers. I don't know that we're getting that this season just because I'm trying to think of the last time we saw the hound, he was headed north. Yeah. And even though apparently geography doesn't matter, which I'm not going to dwell on, <laughs> yeah. uh, he was heading north. There are shots of him fighting in the snow in the previous mm -hmm. this season, along with other crucial characters. So I don't see the mountain getting north this season or the hound getting south this season, yeah. unless that may be the very end or something. I see the hound linking up with the Starks this season. Yeah, I see that too. You, you, you kind of get the feeling they're they're accumulating a sort of, you know, you might call it like a league of justice or someone who's going <laughs> to, you know, avenge the fallen of essentially people who have Valyrian steel weapons. These 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 super friends. Yeah. Uh, A.K.A. the Hound, Arya, Jon, Brienne to send and fight because I think you see all of them fighting in the snow at some point. Along with some other people, probably gotta have some red shirts in there because they think, can kill. They can kill the bad things. I think at some point we're going to get the super friends are going to go south to King's Landing to try and make peace with and you know bring Cersei into the you know into the 
into the uh, into the Justice League, and they're going to fail. And I bet you when they all go down to King's Landing to make their case, that's when we're going to see Clegane Bowl. But I don't think we're seeing that this season. I think that's going to be next season. Um, I did see in that aforementioned Reddit 4chan thing that I saw was that at some point, this said this season, but maybe I just didn't have the time right, but is that that group of people go to King's Landing and bring a zombie with them and say, mm-hmm. like, here. And Cersei doesn't give a shit and... Yeah, maybe that's what happens. I would, I just, you know, I just been wanting Clay Game Bowl to happen since I read about it on the Reddit. <laughs> and, you know, just get hype, man. Get hype. <laughs> so what, I feel like I, 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 what, what, what do you think? Did it, is there anything I said about where the, where we end up at the end of the series that you disagree with? I mean, I think the idea that, you know, John and Daenerys are kind of in charge of two parts of the continent. I mean, I think that has to be the twist is like, you know, the, the obvious question is who ends up on the throne at the end? And I think saying like, well, kind of two people is, you know, or, you know, actually now there's five thrones or something like that um, makes sense. I think if they're, it's tough to justify um, them living a thousand miles apart. <laughs> it's a tough, that's a tough sell, um, especially since, the you know, the point of marriage in these kind of medieval political things is also to, you know, produce offspring. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I can see that possibly you could see John living in King's Landing and ruling the North from afar via Sansa's later Winterfell. However, I just had a new thought and I'm not changing my prediction, but this is just a thought. So if you look at my list, most of the people on there are women. Mm-hmm. I think it's is important thing. And one of Mar- something Martin tries to do is trying to do, uh, your idea of having multiple thrones intrigues me because, you know, it started with the Battle of the Five Kings. There was a lot of talk about that we were going to move into the Battle of the Five Queens. That didn't really quite pan out the way people kind of expected it mm-hmm. to. However, what if when John and Danny marry, he does cede the throne. She's on the throne and he cedes King of the North to be Queen of the North. And we also get Yara or Osha, Asha, whatever she's. I always get confused on which she, who she is in the show. She's Yara in the show, right? Yes, 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 yes. Okay. Um, queen the of the Iron Islands. Queen of the Iron Islands. Uh, and so you've got three queens? So you could have, you would have um, Sansa Stark, Queen of the North. Yara Greyjoy, Queen of the Iron Islands. Um, I would say Sansa Stark, Queen of the North and the Vale, probably. Sure. Daenerys Targaryen, Queen of the uh, the South. Essentially, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you could... You could certainly set that up. I don't know that Yara is, or if, or if John dies, that could be the scenario. Well. Or or John goes goes back north to rebuild the Night's Watch. That's also a thing. Like maybe it doesn't. Maybe this doesn't end the war. They're like a reoccurring threat or something, and he needs to protect against that. Yeah, I can see that. Now we're spiraling, man. <laughs> but I think I think we're all kind of we're, we're we're kind of wrapping around the same idea that it's not going to be one of our central characters is you know wins the tournament and is crowned winner of Song of Ice and Fire, that there's some kind of more distributed or non-monarchical thing at the end. Yeah, I mean, I I think that's the case. I think that unless these big players, like a bunch of them die, which would be a convenient way of being like, well, kind of by process of elimination, so-and-so is the king or queen of, you know, seven kingdoms, (laughs) which feels kind of lame to me. I also think it's, so let's dig it, let's dig in some subtext here and try and look into Martin's view and say, 
how does he think the world works? Does the world trend towards centralization or decentralization? And does he view that as a positive or a negative thing, right? Because in history long past, we trended towards centralization. And even today, that happens to a degree uh, over the long course of history, you know, coalescing into empires, coalescing in from, you know, coming from nomadic peoples up to towns, up to... Uh kingdoms up to empires the kind of like anthropological view of human human progression uh although any anthropologist would yell at me for using the word progression um verse and even more in a modern political context things like the european european union uh you know nato and the warsaw pact all these things that have occurred of centralization occurring versus you know the more idea of like is decentralized rule better for everyone you know if if, if groups of people of like-minded people have their own, you know, rules and everyone can kind of get along from there. So I don't is, know which way he stands on that, but... So is it centralized rule or... Dis I mean, it's sort of a unification but distribution of power, right? Because while, yeah, the European Union centralized um, the, the, the government of Europe, it's still... But it also distributed that decision-making to all the citizens of Europe, Right. Allegedly. Well, I mean, on paper. <laughs> yeah, on no, paper. but yes, on paper. <laughs> um, so... AKA Germany. No, I'm just kidding. The idea that... Because what I see in, in maybe the overarching um, kind of point of view of these books is that George R. R. Martin is saying that the monarchical feudal system with all of its patriarchy and hereditary rule sucks because this is what you end up with. You, this you end up with endless squabbling and war and you know essentially the enslavement of the common folk and you know institutionalized mistreatment of women as a result of this kind of patriarchal monarchical system and the argument you know even that certain characters in the show are basically just saying outright is like yeah it doesn't matter who's in charge because the common people always get screwed or Within six months, a, there's another war and somebody else is in charge. And I think what he's what he might be saying is that these things are not only unsustainable, but also kind of they distract us from larger threats. They make us incapable of dealing with larger, more existential threats because we're too busy fighting over other things. So that's why I feel like, yeah, looking at what his point of view tends or seems to be based on what we see in the books it's, you know, he he's definitely not arguing for if only we get the right person in charge, because even he's shown in the books that Daenerys is kind of an incompetent ruler. She's fucked up two cities before she came to Westeros, or I mean, in the books, at least until she like just fucked off and went back to the Dothraki. Um, you know, she, she, she came in and tried to do things right and fucked up. And, you know, Jon Snow, despite his good intentions, got his ass stabbed to death. And, you know, managed to kind of destroy the Night's Watch in the process of trying to do the right thing. So I feel like he's he's trying to say that, you know, there are no right people to do these jobs. It's more about de-individualizing the power and making more people in charge, right? Like the wildlings, where they don't have a king, you know, they seem okay. <laughs> they, they seem to be the almost, like, um, the most stable of any of the other societies we see. Yeah. So you would argue he has a has a view towards well obviously that I think that's that's all accurate. But I guess my my sex my question then is 
what is his solution? Is his solution that in this particular series, this context, is it one person that has a better, has given a better distribution of power to the other kingdoms and, you know, maybe instituted some democratic tendencies? Or is it a re- a more harsh, delineated decentralization of there is a kingdom of the north, there is a kingdom in the south, there is a this. And because they are more like-minded, they can be more in touch with their people, et cetera, whatever. I don't, I don't know how far they go. Um, but I, I, I could certainly see a scene where Daenerys uses the last dragon to, to melt the Iron Throne back into a puddle as a symbolic gesture of we're not going to have kings and queens anymore. We're going to figure out other ways to do things. Um, yeah. I could see that. It seems a little on the nose, but yeah, yeah it does seem that. a little on the nose. But again, I, I, <laughs> but you know, I think that yeah, I don't know exactly what you know kind of step he goes to. But we've also been hearing a lot in this season about doing things for the realm and yeah. not doing things that are going to hurt the common people. And if that's a theme we're building up to, and then you know that whole scene of the hound in the farmhouse with the you know, the corpses of the farmer and the, the, the child and, you know, going, you know, the, this is what war gets us, you know, what are these, you know, for these people. And, um, yeah. Uh, I, two comments. Uh, I, one of my things I forgot to say was that, uh, I do think all the dragons are dead by the end of the series. Yes. Um, second thing is, uh, this is a broader thought we can talk about some other time, maybe a topic of episode is how I feel like a lot of fantasy has the same storyline. Mm-hmm. So if you, the squabbles of, men distract us from bigger threats, right? Look at Lord of the Rings. No one believes that Sauron is back. No one's willing to really unite and miss a little bit stretch. But, you know, it seems like there are squabbles in there that if they would have been, if all the men and the dwarves and the elves that all agree, this is what we need to do. I guess they do kind of agree the Council of Everon. I mean, that's a bad example. Well, they, they do and they don't. I mean, the, the elves don't, they're not too much of a help. Yeah, like no one really helps. And they're like, yeah, go do that. Uh, um, and I can also say in Wheel of Time, it's a very similar, like, lots of kingdoms, lots of squabbling, lots of invasions and fighting where, meanwhile, they're saying that, hey, the Dark One and his all his forces are amassing and ready to take over the world. Uh, so I wonder if, if this is not a bigger, you know, a bigger theme in fantasy overall, which is interesting because Martin is the, you know, the trope killer, the you know, the turning everything on its head, but maybe he's fitting right in well, with the rest of his, rest he of his also, cronies. He also, he rejects that, you know, that mantle a lot. He says that a lot of people look at my work as a refutation on Tolkien. And he says like, that's not, that's nothing. It couldn't be further from the truth. I'm just telling my own story that, yeah. And yes, I think Tolkien, you know, missed, missed the mark and he did some things wrong, but I'm not like, you know, this isn't a teardown of Tolkien and, the idea that I'm going to flip every fantasy trope on its head is, you know, it's not really what I'm doing here. Uh, now, Joe Abercrombie, we'll see. Yeah. Well, I just, <laughs> I just finished the blade itself, and uh, oh my, yeah, yeah. I, I, uh, I think, I think I'm moving on to book two next because that's pretty good, pretty good stuff in there. Uh, anyway, um, yeah. Uh, two, two things. I did have a couple of dangling plot threads. I'm really not sure what happens with the Iron Bank if they're a player at all past this point. I don't think so. I'm also not really sure if Sam's time at Old Town and his ultimate fate amounts to anything of importance past this point. I I don't think so. I think that he will um, at some point he's going to meet back up with John and become John's maester. But I think I think his his 
in fact, I think the reason that they had him cure Jorah was to give him something to do at Old Town other than find a book. That's fair. Although I, I might add him to my list of people who survive. Uh, yeah, Samuel Tarley's surviving. Yeah. Yeah. Because he's, cause he's Martin, right? I mean, he's the... The author surrogate character? Yeah. He might every, be. He's, he's always got one. Well, and I think he's one of the, um, the showrunner's favorite characters as well. Gotcha. So I think that that's possible. But... Um, so I think we've we've danced around our predictions. I think we've got I think we did more speculating than predicting, but I think that's okay. Uh we'll have to take a look back at this at the end of this season and then at the end of the next one and see how well we did. But why don't we talk about season seven, episode four? Yeah. Which was called The Spoils of War. That's right. I always forget the name names of the titles. Uh so I thought this episode was the best of the season so far. Now, once again, uh, that's a low set bar. <laughs> I there was there was there were some things I really really liked in this episode, as opposed to it was this was okay, this was okay, and this was bad. Um, I really liked Arya's homecoming across the board was pretty solid. Yes, I'm I'm getting I mean I almost I want to say I'm getting tired of homecomings, but given the people we've had homecoming. I'm not really tired of them yet because we've, we've worked up to this for so long. That's like, yeah, they all deserve their moments. Uh, Arya dueling with Brienne was awesome. Yeah. That scene was just played out perfectly by both those actresses. I mean, the sheer like joy and realization for both of them that they expressed via their grunts and facial expressions and fighting. Like, I just loved it. I thought they played and, it all perfectly. And I was worried about this because we, we've, we haven't really seen Arya do her fantasy karate. Yeah. And <laughs> yes, again, you know, like we talked about with Iron Fist, like I always kind of worry like, oh, they're supposed to be. But like Maisie Williams is doing an amazing job at selling those uh, selling that fighting style. And yeah, I mean, w when they first lined up to fight, I was like, this looks ridiculous. Like, there's no way this is going to look anything short of stupid. But I was like, oh, OK. But she's she is pulling off. I mean, all of the, you know, the actual martial arts parts of it, like she looks like she's, she looks, she doesn't look like an actor doing, doing sword fighting. She looks like someone who knows how to sword fight. And the fact that she's doing all that, but still doing great face work to show how much she's kind of enjoying it. Like to your point, like she's doing a, a, just a great job. And I, I read something today that, so Maisie Williams, the real person is right-handed, but Arya fights left-handed. So Maisie Williams, the actress, is doing that whole scene with her non-dominant hand. Wow. Yeah. I mean, of all, of all the things for them to ditch from the books and things <laughs> to care about, like, who the fuck cares? Right. But well, whatever. I didn't notice that. Like, she's left-handed. I was like, oh, man, are they going to do a Princess Bride thing, like, where she she says, you know, like, well, I have a surprise for you. I'm not really left-handed. And switch, you know. Um, but no, it's just, uh, yeah, again, that's the detail you guys chose to keep. Um, but no, and, it's yeah. that. And like, and like really Bri good. Brienne, like her initial frustration at losing or like not getting beat and then realizing that she's being beat by a girl. And like that, I just, yeah. they both just did an amazing job. This I love tiny it. Stark it girl. Yeah. Um, uh, so that was good. I, I, I also, there were some things I liked. Uh, yeah. I really liked um, that little scene. Um, I think that some of the, I mean, the battle, there were parts of it that were just beautifully done. There are, are, you know, the shot that comes to mind is there's one little shot it just lasts for a couple seconds where you're, it's almost like the camera is mounted on the back of one of the Dothraki horses. And you see this huge panoramic shot of the, of the whole horde galloping towards the Lannisters across that, you know, kind of, um, 
marshy, canyony landscape, and it just it was just gorgeous. Um, and then a lot of the shots in that battle, once everything's on fire and it's smoky and it's got kind of this golden light going on, um, there were some really beautiful things in there as well. And even the opening shot, I think, you know, a little bit of clever, you know, this is opening shot where the foreground is framed up by some like dried out, desiccated thorn bushes as the Lannisters march away with the hot, with the high garden gold, a little bit on the nose now that we just killed the queen of thorns and look at these dead thorns. But it was just well shot, and um, they showed us a, a landscape that we haven't seen before in Game of Thrones. This is kind of like, um, um, not quite a desert, not quite a marshland, but a lot of rock formations, and you know, um, just kind of yeah, an interesting landscape that we haven't we haven't seen a lot of diversity in the landscapes in a while. And yeah, I thought it was really well done. And again, like I've been saying, you know, the individual scenes with all the actors. Um, I have a couple complaints. We'll get there are generally very well done. Everybody's doing a great job with the acting. Everything's beautifully shot. I mean, I think the biggest problem coming out of the, all of this is the writing. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree with the, the beauty of the shots. I love the colors this episode. I mean, we, we're in a world of lots of grays and blues and all that sort of stuff, especially in the battle scenes, or it's always at nighttime, you know, because it's cheaper to do that. And, you know, this was a big battle scene. I mean, people talk about the Battle of the Bastards and Blackwater, but like this scene is probably bigger. There were more. There were so many real horses in that scene, mm -hmm. and just you know, I don't like to focus on production so much, but like it looked really, really good across the board. I mean, there were some things from a writing standpoint that weren't perfect, but like mm -hmm. the actual look and feel of the fight, and they they really nailed that just like chaotic sense of battle. I mean, you saw a lot of notes from Battle of the Bastards in this of just like how terrible it is to be in a battle. There's nothing heroic or gallant or you're just trying to get by and that came out in this as I, well you know th as it come out in the past and i think it was a little bit of genius to show us the battle more from the perspective of the lannister army to highlight like this is how powerful of a weapon dragons are you know yeah. to be like and the Dothraki are the, yeah there is nothing that these armies can do against dragons that they are they are you know they are really really um it is a game-changing weapon. I think they did a great job with that. I do have a pretty big problem with this battle scene. Uh, and this is something that we've been talking about a lot on this show, and that is I'm getting so sick of characters on this show all of a sudden getting hit on the head with the stupid ball, st with the stupid bat just so that it can be a dramatic moment on the show. So in the past, we talked about how stupid it was to put you know, Yara and all the sand snakes and Theon on one boat on the trip to Dorne. Like, that's just stupid. Um, but it makes for a good moment in the show when all of your main characters get killed or kidnapped. But the episode from this show is everybody in the Lannister army forgets that they have the anti-dragon crossbow, except Jamie. I, I think you pointed out, Jamie does say to Bran, Bran at some point, like, go to the scorpion, which is, they call ballistas scorpions, whatever. Um... They all forget about that at the last minute. So they had the, the, the Lannister army had the presence of mind to say, let's bring one of these anti-dragon scorpions mounted in a secret wagon, right? That where the sides blow off to make room for the thing. Design that, build that, bring it with us. But the minute a dragon shows up, everybody fucking forgets that they have it until the very last minute where Bronn's like, oh, right, our anti-dragon weapon. It's just... And they also clearly had no plan for what the infantry does when a dragon shows up, right? Like, they had the plan to bring the thing, 
But they didn't go one step further and say, okay, well, we know that our shields are going to be useless, so maybe don't just have the soldiers like, soldiers like stand behind their shields. Like, no, when the dragon shows up, the thing you should do is scatter and look for cover or like have some kind of plan. But they don't. They just brought their toy and hoped everything worked out. And that's not – this is the Jamie Lannister who orchestrated that like Casterly Rock High Garden switcheroo in the last episode, this supposed military genius. But he's like, nah, it's cool. We got the crossbow. Well, who's going to like shoot it if a dragon shows up? I don't know. We'll figure it out. It just – it was so frustrating to me in the moment because these characters shouldn't be this stupid just so that we can have the dramatic moment. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll push back a little bit. And I'll say that I think that his, the initial, I mean, I, I try and give them benefit of doubt in two ways. A, he does try and get the archers involved. You know, he has a lines up archers to try and maybe that was part of the, a, a, a thing they had practiced before. And you got that vibe that like, they knew that routine a little bit, which was dumb because it didn't work because they know it doesn't work. Right. <laughs> um, which is a little bit stupid, to be fair. But they have to, they have to show uh, the audience but, doesn't work. I mean, yeah. But I do think that maybe just like you could give a, a little bit of the, the, the explanation could be just like they were formed up. The dragon came at the last minute and the sheer shock of seeing a fucking dragon. I mean, you're being told about something like I'm sure like, I don't know, like if you were, let's say, let's say like an example, like you were. A soul, like a Viet Cong member during Vietnam, and you've never seen a helicopter or a plane before in your life, and you saw one. Like, I'm not sure you're like there's any amount of training can prepare you to be like pick up that RPG and like get up there. You know yeah. what I mean? I mean, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying like I think there may be a little bit like holy shit, that's really a fucking. Dragon. But if I'm but if I'm but if I'm JB Lannister, I'd be like, all right, you five guys, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna find my most steely nerved guys, the guys who are least likely to break under pressure. And I'm going to get them and I'm going to say, you guys are in charge of manning this thing. Under no circumstances are you to leave this wagon because if a dragon shows up, you are our only fucking hope. And we're going to drill on this and we're going to prepare for this. And um, I, there's five of you so that if one of you shits his pants, I've still got four more who can run this thing. Um, but another example from this is, so there's a scene with Missandei and John and Davos, where they're on the steps outside Dragonstone having a little conversation. Also, by the way, they notice the Ironborn ship sailing up, like when it's already like halfway into the bay. I'm like, ships don't move that fast, dude. Like that thing's been on the horizon for the last 30 minutes and you're just now noticing it. But so Missandei joins Daenerys's crew because she has what skill set? Do you remember? Languages. Yes. She's a translator. And she's the C-3PO of the show. Exactly. She's the protocol droid. <laughs> now, as the protocol droid, she knows all the languages, but we've also seen her, I am pretty sure, be fairly fluent in the customs and traditions of other cultures so that she can say to Daenerys like, oh, you know, this is how so-and-so does things and blah, blah, blah. Okay. So we've established that. And yet, when she has this conversation with Jon Snow, she doesn't even know what the concept of a bastard is. Yeah, or that was dumb. Or or that or just the general naming conventions of the l largest civilization that's right across the river from where she used to live, river, ocean, whatever, right across the ocean from where she used to live that regularly trades with her cultures and she doesn't know, we're supposed to believe that she doesn't know that like, oh yeah, when the kids are out of wedlock, they get a name based on the area they were born in. Like, seriously? I'm supposed to believe this about this character now, but 
why what but again it's like characters are just forgetting their powers because it makes an easier scene or a more dramatic scene and i'm getting very frustrated with that because that's not the way the show used to be is that your characters were competent and because you could predict how your characters were going to react to things scenes could be interesting like you know it's like if you put two characters together and you know that when you have like Varys and Littlefinger, like I think last week you talked about how like those two were so fun to watch together because you know Varys has, he knows everything that's going on in King's Landing because he has his spy network, but then also Littlefinger knows everything that's going on and they know each other's plans and like you know what these characters are capable of, you have a sense of what they know, so you're excited to see what happens when they get together. But now it's like, well, any any conversation Littlefinger might have with Sansa, like he might just be an idiot that particular week and not, ha- you know, not be a schemer and not be intelligent and not be two moves ahead just because uh it's well, it's more fun if we have Sansa win this little verbal exchange. So we're going to we're going to we're going to lower his intelligence score by 6 for this scene. Yeah, I mean and, and like the thing with Masande like what was even the point of that scene? Right. Like are you reminding viewers that he's a bastard because of his upcoming lineage? Yes, like Exactly. Is that what it is? Like that's dumb. Like come on, who's watching the show doesn't remember that John's a bastard. It's only been a major plot point for 7 seasons. Like uh yeah, I I mean I agree with you 100%. I think that it's a lot of you know, like I said like just characters not being the same characters anymore. And that's not how a show should be at this point. And unfortunately, it's, I think it's a problem a lot of shows run into this late in the game. Um, oftentimes, for the most part, shows at this point in their run, this is when they usually falter. I mean, very few shows end well. <laughs> yeah. In the grand scheme of TV shows. And oftentimes, and even some, even some who do, that last, even like, especially that season before is oftentimes the one that flounders. Like, Breaking Bad, a, season, a show that does end well. Mm-hmm. The fourth season is oftentimes considered mm, yeah, kind of a low point of the show. You know, uh, a show, well, I think some other classic ones, like some of the start of Prestige TV, like a Lost or maybe a 24, like I don't think ended particularly well from my understanding. <laughs> Battlestar Galactica ended okay, but that last season and a half, eh. Well, I think where Game of Thrones is, is really faltering here is that it used to be that it felt like you were watching real people, fully developed characters, who were competent and intelligent and had a, had points of view um, in a fantasy setting. But now it just feels like they're just like standard TV show characters who have whatever traits and attitudes that they need in that particular scene. Like The Simpsons, like even in a given episode, Homer will go back and forth between being, you know, having an IQ of four and being a normal person based on what joke we need, right? Or Bart will go back and forth between being like a bratty bully or a victim to other bullies and a um, more of a nerd just based on what are the jokes that we need here. And that works fine in maybe an ensemble comedy, maybe. But in this show where, you know, for so many years we've been dealing with like, no, these characters have their own goals and, you know, the plot goes where these characters' actions take it. And being able to predict or wonder how characters are going to act and how the scene is going to go based on how characters react to things and what choices they make. That was what made this show exciting. Now it's just like, well, no, things are just going to happen the way they're going to happen because people will be stupid when they need to be stupid and smart when they need to be smart and vengeful when they need to be vengeful and forgiving when they need to be forgiving. And it's just really disappointing. 
question for you. Mm -hmm. I've heard some people levy this accusation. Do you think this is a result of moving past what's written in the books? Uh, I don't think it's a result of, of moving past what's written in the books. I think it's a result of the show. I think it's a result of the, you know, the reduced involvement of George R. R. Martin. I think it's, you have, you had a, you had the plots dictated by the work of a, of this writer, very character driven. You know, he says one of the reasons that, you know, it takes so long is because he doesn't outline things. He lets the plot and the characters, he lets the, the plot go where the characters take it. Um, and that's the way that the early stuff was. So maybe it is because we've gotten beyond the books and now you've got TV people taking over and they're thinking about the plot and the big moments and the, ooh, what's going to get the internet talking about this episode? And, you know, char character integrity isn't going to matter as much to them as like, well, you know, do we have enough like shots of brooding Jon Snow with sexy haircut uh, in this episode? Right. And I'm going to make a connection to last week's episode and say, this is why everyone needs to play tabletop role-playing games, because that teaches you how to do this. <laughs> because if you do something that's out of character, the DM goes, why would your character do that? That makes no sense based on your backstory and your, and your stats. That's dumb. Yeah. And it trains you to, to use that to make character-driven things because your story is inherently character-driven, and that's how all stories should be. Yeah. I mean, minus potentially ensemble comedy, uh, because, you know, it's okay that it's always sunny, the straight man alternates every episode, because that's fine. Yeah. Because these characters are caricatures. Really. And, and you know, there are other areas, like there are some fantasy where I'm fine with, you know, one dimensional characters and things being very, very plot driven. And it's it's fine. But when I go from a show that was, and, and a series of books was set up very, very character driven, and that's what we signed on for. And now all of a sudden, it's no longer character driven. It's just, it's just like lost. Things happen because the story has to move along. And um, characters will do or say whatever needs to happen to move us to the next plot point. I think you summed it up perfectly. I mean, I could bitch and moan more about geography and traveling time and the map of the world, but I think we're going to save that for another yes, episode. I think we're going to talk about that uh, uh, next week or or maybe a little later, depending on how how things shake out. But um, so we're just about out of time. Do you have any recommendations this week? Um, I will recommend that this is a weird one. I mean, not a weird one, I guess, but since this is what we talked about, if you're a show watcher who hasn't read the books, maybe someone who has never read a fantasy book before in their life, but are interested. I would rec I think you should read The Song of Ice and Fire. I think that you can see where the show started based on the books and not like, I don't care, I'm not talking about plot points, but we're talking about some of the flaws in writing and direction. And I'm not saying the books are perfectly perfect because because of his lack of outlining, letting characters just muck around, the books get bogged down. And a lot of people have troubles with the fourth and fifth one. Although I didn't notice it too bad. Um, the fourth one, maybe the fifth one I, I liked better. Yeah. Cause the fourth uh, one is mostly Daenerys. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, the fourth one doesn't have Daenerys in it really? at all. Yeah. This one, this one is Daenerys. Oh, the, fourth, the fourth one is bad because it doesn't have any of our main characters in it. It's like three quarters Ironborn stuff. Oh, it's like, that's right. All right. Well, that's what I was thinking. Um, and Cersei. So, uh, but I would recommend these books. I think that for someone who doesn't care about fantasy, but maybe wants to branch out a little bit, they are a little denser to read than some things there's a lot of details a lot of names a lot of places but a lot of it's just context and fluff yeah. i don't think that it's stuff that you like some books i've read where it's just like there's too many characters and i don't know what's going on anymore 
I don't think it feels this way because of the structure of having point of view character chapters. I think it makes it very tight point of view character chapters. I think it makes it very easy to follow the, the basics if you don't care about the deep subtext or foreshadowing or whatever else. I agree. It, it's certainly worth a worth a read. Um, maybe if there's a way, there's an abridged version of books four and five, maybe you could find that uh, might help. But um, some people have spliced the two together mm-hmm. in like chronological order since they take place simultaneously. And then the fifth one goes a little further past the end of it. And people have said it helps a great deal because you don't want to read a whole fourth book between three and five where you don't know anything about Danny or John or Arya or I forget who else is not in that book, but like half of your main characters you haven't seen in a long time. Now you don't see them at all. And that's not fun. Yeah. Um, I would recommend in a similar vein, if you enjoy um, a grittier fantasy uh, like I say, I just finished, um, the blade itself by Joe Abercrombie and I, I very much enjoyed it. I think one of my favorite things other than just his, I get when I started reading his very British prose, which I like, um, and even his villain villainous characters are a lot of fun to read. And also I'm not really sure who the villains are, which I enjoy. Um, it, uh, what I really like is how little exposition he includes is that, Characters rarely ever explain to each other, like, the history of the world or how the different kind of um, ethnic groups and civilizations act and interact. Like, you just have to pick up those details contextually as you go, uh, because these characters are talking and thinking like characters in their own world, just like um, if I happen to be thinking or um talking about Japan to someone, I don't say, well, you know, Japan, where um, ethnically speaking, people have these features. And culturally speaking, they do XYZ, I would just be like, oh, you know, um, in Japan, now they've got a vending machine that gives you cats. I don't know. (laughs) But I wouldn't have to say all those things because we both have an understanding of what Japan is. But a lot of fantasy books, they have characters explaining these well known facts to each other. Joe Abercrombie has none of that. It's just kind of like, like there are these monsters, I guess, called the Shanka in the books that he never really describes. Like, I'm still not even sure at this point, uh, at the end of the book, are they monsters or are those just people that are people are racist about? Like, it's, it's, it, and that's, that's fantastic because again, the characters don't bother explaining each other to each other because no one does that. So, um, I enjoy that a lot. Who, who's your favorite character at this point? Oh boy. I think, uh, I think I like Inquisitor Glockta. He's a, you and everybody else. He's a lot of fun to read. Um, but Baez the Wizard is not bad either. Ooh, uh, Baez, man. Uh, so do you agree with what I said before about there being not really any heroes <laughs> at all? I mean... I guess, um, what's the guy's name? The the guy's in the military. Oh. Uh, West? Yeah, but he's kind of a minor character. Yeah, that's true. But he gets, he gets more important as time goes on, but he seems like the most the most decent guy in the thing so far i mean far. it's it's it, yeah there's no heroes in the way that there's no heroes in real life i mean like everybody is most for the most part trying to act noble and honorably for the most part like you know they're trying to get by in this world you know in a way that matches their own you know morality but anyway i enjoy it a lot does does one well, last question sorry i don't want to get distracted but does the bloody nine terrify you? Oh man. Oh man. That was a hell of a last couple of chapters where that, where the bloody nine showed up and I'm like, Oh, I did not see this coming. And this is amazing. Yeah. Cool. I'm glad you're liking it. Uh, 
We'll talk more about that later. All right. Well, I think that about does it for us for this week, buddy. Uh, I hope you enjoy uh, the next seven days, and we'll talk again next week. See you next week.